If you've ever sat down to do a jigsaw puzzle, you'll know that there are certain basic requirements. My dad knew a man who, with his mum, would take three jigsaws, decent-sized ones, thousands of pieces each. They'd mix up all the pieces from three jigsaws in a single box, put away the three pictures and not look at them, and then set out to complete the three jigsaws. It took them a while, but they got there. Now, if the box says there are 3,000 pieces, you need precisely 3,000 pieces. Even with one piece missing, when you look at it, you'll know something is missing. Have a piece left over, and you're left wondering, where did that come from? Should it really be there? Has it been replaced by an imposter? And you can know if you've got it right because you can check back with the original on the lid of the box. 3,000 pieces, 5,000 pieces, 24 pieces if that's your limit with a jigsaw. But all the pieces, present and correct, in their rightful place. Nothing more, nothing less. The gospel's a bit like that. You can turn to the Bible and discover what the pieces are. You can see where they fit, how they fit, and what the final picture looks like. And with an open Bible, you can be confident of those truths which must not be excluded and that nothing more needs to be added. That's the gospel. Now, in this series, when I use the word gospel, I'm talking very specifically about that truth which has been established by God through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by which a man or woman may be saved or born again or converted or whichever phrase you may use, which means that. What I'm not so concerned about in this particular series are the many privileges which are, which are conferred upon the believer once you are saved. So, for example, the fact that we are adopted by God into his family. Now, becoming adopted as a child of God is a glorious result of saving faith. But adoption in itself is not one of those aspects of the gospel by which we are actually saved. So, for example, receiving a gold medal and forever being acknowledged as a gold medalist is a wonderful prize. It's a guaranteed prize for winning your event at the Olympic Games. But the gold medal didn't play any part in your achieving the gold medal. So that there are many glorious benefits which come to the Christian, but I'm narrowing down the gospel more than that to those vital truths by which a sinner may be saved. 
So I'm not taking into account, for example, that ongoing work of sanctification in the life of every believer, which in many ways can be said to be part of the gospel. It's not that I don't think these things are important. Of course, they're important. But I've got quite a narrow scope for this particular series. What is the gospel that a sinful man or woman needs to hear in order that they might be saved? A little bit like the Philippian jailer who cried out to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, there's all kinds of doctrines there that wasn't men- they're not mentioned. But what must I do to be saved? What lies right at the heart there for salvation itself? That's the scope for this particular series. That's what I'm concentrating upon. How God has accomplished that through the Lord Jesus Christ. There are things that we can say as Christians, we've been saved to. We've been saved to a life of righteousness and holiness. But that's not my scope for this particular series. And our starting point this evening is Paul's brief summary, familiar to many of you, that we've just read together at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And from then on, in the rest of this little series, we're going to unpack these truths and examine them a little bit more and seek to understand how they actually apply to me and to you. Now Luke, there's a gospel which he wrote. He wrote the book of the Acts of the Apostles. He was a great friend and traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He undoubtedly learned much from Paul and he records these words from Jesus right at the end of his gospel. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. There's the gospel. Now again, it's, it's a narrow thing that Jesus is talking about. There are other things that could be included under the theme of the gospel that Jesus doesn't mention there. And really that that Jesus is recorded as saying at the end of Luke's gospel is really what Paul is saying here at the beginning of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. That's the heart of what I want to look at. That's what lies at the heart of Paul's summary in these verses as he writes these things down and then reflects upon his own position as an apostle, what it was that he was doing before that And he can only marvel at the grace that God has shown him and acknowledge that it is God's grace that has been the active force in his life. We must never forget that the gospel is God's abundant grace lavished upon undeserving sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll be digging deeper into some of these things, but let's begin with this simple summary in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What an encouragement it is to see that the gospel can be written down in just two verses. Isn't that wonderful? 
Now, you can buy books as thick as your fist, which don't even begin to plumb these depths, but it can be written down and summarized in just two verses. Isn't that wonderful? The most uneducated man or woman can understand the gospel. Paul has many such short summaries and statements about the gospel. But here perhaps is the gospel stripped back to bare metal. And this is where we'll begin. And let's look at three simple things that Paul brings to our attention with one overriding truth with all of them. First of all, he states very clearly and simply, Christ died for our sins. Christ. We see, first of all, that the gospel is about a person. And the gospel is based upon historical fact. It's not just a theory. It's not someone's philosophy. It's about a real man who lived, Jesus Christ, the man who is God. Now, believe it or not, just four weeks ago, it was Christmas Eve. And we were singing, God of God, light of light. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, very God, begotten, not created. We were singing Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him, come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. There's mystery there. This is the man who is God. Hail the incarnate deity, God become a man. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, which the gospel writer tells us means God with us. It begins with Christ. God come as a man into this world. Something actually happened in history in order for there to be a gospel at all. The real and actual death of Jesus Christ lies at the centre of the gospel And it wasn't merely an extreme demonstration and example of love and self-sacrifice, as some like to limit it. It was those things, but it was so much more. Christ died for our sins. It was an act of substitution. Christ Jesus died in the place of sinners. He died for our sins and that his death was according to the scriptures means not just that it was prophesied and foretold that it must happen and how it would happen but the Old Testament scriptures also explain why it must happen, why it must be that way. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the the writer there contrasts the Lord Jesus Christ with all of the old, Old Testament ceremonial laws of sacrifice. And he explains how 
This Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. That this is the one final sacrifice who died once for all and who accomplished that which all of these sacrifices could never hope to accomplish. And the writer says there can be no remission of sins. There can be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And much of what is recorded for us in the Old Testament demonstrates that for us again and again. There needs to be death and bloodshed for the forgiveness of sins. Because, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. The penalty for our sins is death. And in the Old Testament system of sacrifice, we see those principles laid down for us. An offering must be brought. The animal must be without spot and without blemish. The very best from the flock or from the herd. And blood must be shed in order that sins might be forgiven and that God's anger might be appeased. A life must be given on behalf of the people. And the people must see that it is their sins that make this a requirement. It is really their life that should be taken because of their sinfulness. But God has said that he will graciously accept the death of another in their place. Through the death of this one, God stands ready to forgive your sins. Isn't that wonderful? Your sins, my sins, they deserve God's righteous judgment. And the Bible tells us the penalty is death. But God has allowed for the death of a substitute to satisfy his divine justice. There's a single word that the Bible uses for this. We find it in 1 John 2 verse 2 where John says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, it's referring to the fact that God is satisfied that the death of Christ has paid in full the penalty for our sins. That his anger having been poured out upon Christ no longer therefore has to be poured out upon those who are trusting in Christ and who believe on Christ. God's anger towards my sins has instead fallen on Jesus at Calvary. He's taken the penalty for me and on my behalf. Jesus did not die because of my sins. Jesus died for my sins. It wasn't a random act of kindness. It was a legal substitution in the eyes of God. I will accept the death of my son in your place. Christ died for our sins. So this is as has often been said, it's, it's a courtroom situation where the convict has just correctly been found guilty and his crimes carry the death penalty. But the judge does something incomprehensible. 
he sends his own son to the gallows in the place of the convict and is prepared to accept that through the death of his own son, the sentence has been carried out. And then if that's not enough, the convict, who now may walk free, can take the place of the son. Well, that judge is either mad or he's the most kind, most gracious, most merciful, most compassionate judge this world has ever known. Of course, the picture breaks down a little at this point because Jesus Christ is no ordinary son and God the Father is no ordinary judge. Both are almighty God. And Christ, though given as a substitute and dying in our place, did not stay dead. Of course, Paul's going to come on to that. And Christ today is reunited with his Father in all his glory. So it's not a perfect illustration, but it goes a long way to explaining that Christ died for our sins. So verses like these are true. Peter, we're not keeping it solely to Paul. Peter says this in his first letter, chapter 3. Christ suffered once. Christ's one death covered all sins. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. It should have been you if you're a Christian, but it was him. That he might bring us to God. Because your sins have cast you off from God, separated you from God. How did this happen? By being put to death in the flesh. That's what Peter says. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, God made Christ who knew no sin. You see, if any man is to die in the place of sinners, then that man must have no sins of his own, or he himself needs a saviour. Christ was the perfect one who lived a sinless life. He who knew no sin, God made him to be sin for us. Not that Jesus committed those sins, but he took upon himself my sins and paid the penalty for my sins. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And you see in that verse that Paul gives us this great exchange which takes place. We'll look at this in more detail later in the series. But you see your sins being put to Christ and his righteousness coming to you. Of course, here is an area where the gospel stands out from all other forms of religion. God in Christ Jesus accomplishing for me that which I need but which I could never achieve for myself. You'll sometimes hear the word atonement. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus dying for our sins in order to secure our pardon and our release. Jesus has made atonement for sins. Christ 
died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is the gospel in its most basic form. The second thing Paul says is that Christ was buried and again according to the scriptures. Now this helps to emphasize the historical reality of what happened at Calvary. As surely as the animals died in the tabernacle and then in the temple as sacrifices were made, Jesus died. He was dead in a borrowed tomb. He was there Friday. He was there Saturday. And he was still there Sunday morning. Three days. Now it's true that when we read that he was in the grave for three days, it actually doesn't add up to 72 hours. But he was in the tomb Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And that's what the three days is referring to. The gospel accounts leave us under no illusions that the crucifixion of Jesus did its job. Crucifixion always did. John 19 provides sufficient proof. All the gospel writers talk about it, but John 19 provides us with all the proof that we need. The Sabbath was approaching. The Jews were not permitted to touch a dead body on the Sabbath and they could not bear the thought that these bodies would remain on these crosses during their Sabbath. So in talking to the Romans, the Romans hurried up the deaths of those being crucified so that they could be brought down from the crosses and buried before the Sabbath arrived at the close of the day on Friday evening. The Romans used their tried and trusted method to hasten death for those being crucified. They would break their legs. Because with unbroken legs, you could push down in agony, but relieve the awful pressure on your chest so that you could breathe. Because ultimately in crucifixion, you died of asphyxiation. You couldn't breathe break their legs and they would not be able to push up and relieve their chest and death would come quickly. Yes, it's gruesome, but it worked. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead and a spear thrust in his side confirmed it and the Romans made no mistakes when it comes to execution. They know a dead body when they see one. And we have the death of Christ witnessed by the crowd that were there. We have the death of Christ witnessed by the Roman officials who ensured that his tomb was sealed with a Roman seal and guards placed outside of it. And the historicity of these events is confirmed. You see, there are a lot of sceptics around who try to sidestep the issue over Christ's resurrection. And they'll come up with fancy theories and stories. Some will go back to the point of saying, well, actually, he didn't die, you see. He was dead. He was buried, according to the scriptures. You don't bury one who is not dead. Jesus had died. And he was in the grave. 
And then thirdly says Paul, Christ rose on that third day. It wasn't just a man who died at Calvary. This man is eternal God. Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He defeated sin. He defeated the grave. He put an end to it. His victory over the grave is the proof that God himself has become our salvation. His victory over the grave is the evidence that we too in Christ can have newness of life. Paul will go on to say in 1 Corinthians 15 how utterly vital the resurrection of Jesus is. If Jesus is not risen, he says, we are the most pitiable people in the whole world. The gospel is about a risen Lord Jesus Christ, victorious over sin and death. And Paul goes on to mention the hundreds of people who saw the risen Jesus. And let's not forget those Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb. And they went back to the officials in Jerusalem and said, you're not going to believe what we've just seen. But see it, we did. You see, the gospel offers not just forgiveness of sins. Now, that in itself is so glorious. But the gospel assures the sinner of new life, new birth. Because Christ defeated the grave and rose. The Christian at the moment of their conversion is not just forgiven. He or she is born again and receives newness of life. And in our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, we benefit both from his death and from his resurrection. This is the gospel that Paul preached now, this newness of life brings with it many amazing benefits, wonderful privileges. But what, what is it that actually ensures that we may be forgiven? What is it that actually ensures that we might be saved from our sins? Paul reminds us that the resurrection of Christ is our assurance it's your assurance that you have been born again and raised anew and that all that is promised for eternity for you as a Christian is certain because Christ is raised. We read from Psalm 16, the resting place in the ground of the Christian is not their final resting place. Christ is risen. You also will be raised. Now, in many senses, you already have been, if you're a Christian. You've been raised to newness of life in Christ, but there's another resurrection coming. It's even greater. Glorious resurrection coming. And as Christians, having been forgiven our sins and born again, we now live our lives under the lordship of the risen Christ. And this risen Jesus is the object of our praise and one day we'll return that we might be with him forever. Here's what's at the centre of it all. If you want to get to the very heart of the gospel, if you want to find out what the kernel is inside the nut of the gospel, here it is. 
This, says Paul, is the gospel I preached. This is the gospel you believed. This is the gospel by which you were saved. The gospel begins with a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. A person who did what? Died. Why? As a substitute to take God's punishment for your sins. How can you be sure that he really did take your punishment in full and it wasn't merely a token gesture? Because he was executed by the Romans and he lay buried in the grave and he rose again the third day. And why is this more than just a fascinating piece of history? Because today that same Jesus lives having defeated the grave and risen from the dead in the power of an endless life. This is the gospel, says Paul. Verse 11. So we preach and so you believed. Question. Do you believe this, that you might be saved.